Welcome to Techno, where Sophos experts debate, explore, explain, and hopefully help you to understand the often baffling world of computer security. This Techno is presented by me, Paul Ducklin. And by me, James Wyke. Now, James, many of our listeners will have read your in-depth malware articles on Naked Security. We love your work, by the way. We hope you write many more. You're from Sophos Labs, you're in the front line against malware, and your special subject is our very troublesome topic for today, namely botnets. Now I want to look at the what, the how, and the why. So let's start at the very beginning. What is a bot, and what's a botnet? Okay, so a bot is basically a program which runs on a victim's machine and carries out tasks in an automated way. So basically you get a bot to do a task for you which can be carried out across the internet. So a bot talks to its its bot master and the bot master gives it instructions and um, it's basically under control of another entity. Obviously a bot is a piece of malware because you wouldn't choose to have it on your computer but the big difference from traditional malware, say something that deletes files on Friday the 13th or goes looking for individual files and encrypts them like, say, CryptoLocker. The difference with a bot is it's not necessarily pre-programmed to do any one of those things. It's actually able to take instructions remotely. Yes, I think that that's a good summary. The big point about a bot is that it can receive commands, um, but those commands are variable. Its entire functionality can't be sort of summarized without knowing what it receives from the person controlling it. And in fact, uh, if I'm not jumping ahead, uh, most bots include a very general function, don't they, that says, grab this file and update yourself. So it's almost impossible to write a description in advance which would describe for a victim what the bot might have done. The answer is always, really, it depends. Without analysing the full network capture of the entire interchange between the bot and the person controlling it, you can't say for sure exactly what that bot might have done. The update, the self-updating command is extremely common. Pretty much every bot in existence has that command. And they also have the command to just sort of arbitrarily go and download some other file and execute it. It might not only update itself, it might go and download some completely different piece of malware, which carries out a completely different set of functionality. So it's sort of like Windows Security Center, except that it has exactly the opposite of security in mind. Basically, if there's some element of the bot which is being countermanded, for example, maybe one of the control servers has been taken down, as long as you can still connect to that bot, you can issue an update and replace the piece which doesn't work anymore. So that's a bot. The bot is the individual piece of malware that runs on your computer when you get infected. What do we mean then when we talk about a botnet? So a botnet is essentially just a collection of bots. But they'll be all sort of under one control. Either they'll all be talking to one server and the person who controls the botnet connects into that server and issues commands. Or there'll be perhaps a peer-to-peer botnet, which means that they're all talking to each other and they're all passing commands around between each of the bots. 
but they're all, there's all sort of one element of control over this one group of bots, and that groups it into a botnet. What sort of size are we talking about for the average botnet that the average cybercriminal, if there is such a thing, has under his control? How many bots in the average botnet? Well, a quite decent size to a botnet is generally sort of tens of thousands is a pretty big botnet. There are certainly quite a few larger than that. For example, um, the Zero Access botnet, which we've talked about quite a few times on Naked Security, that has developed into upwards of sort of 2 million. That would be the exception. Most botnets would, would sort of, you'd be quite happy to have one that had, say, 10,000 individual bots in it. That's quite a decent size for a botnet. So that's why we also have the term zombie, I presume, for a computer that's infected with a bot. Because it's, a, if you like, a sort of sleeper agent that can be woken up to do the bidding of a cyber criminal when he or she feels like it. It's usually not very obvious that a machine is infected with a bot um, because it's silently running in the background, doing whatever it does, waiting for a command, which when it receives, it will then go and do something. And even when that happens, a lot of the time, the person infected won't actually know that anything has gone on. You're a zombie because... Um, you're no longer in control. For all the foreground stuff that you do, like reading email, browsing the web, running Word or Excel or whatever, all of that just works normally, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's it's generally not in the the botnet owner's interest to make the person who's infected realise that they're infected, because they then they're going to try and do something about it. They're going to try and clean up their machine, uh, whereas. If they don't realise they're infected, they'll probably stay infected for longer. OK, if I can move on, James, to the how. One of the things that you often hear people saying about the idea of having their computer under remote control from someone outside is, hey, I've got a firewall, I've got a router, all of these things block inbound connections. How on earth can someone have remote control of my computer, essentially turn it into a server, if they can't connect into it in the first place? Most bots these days will work by the initial executable file, which you've been either tricked into running or maybe a drive-by download has started executing on your machine. So it will then make an outbound connection to the command and control server, and it will then wait for, for someone to then give it explicit commands, which just goes down the channel that your machine has already established back out to the server. So they don't need to make any inbound connection to your machine because an outbound connection has already been made and that's the channel that they can communicate over. It's like a polling mechanism. It periodically they'll, they'll do what's called beaconing where sort of every five minutes or maybe every one minute it will make the same request seeing, going out to see if it's got new instructions. Um, this might be an HTTP request so it might just look like a normal web request um, or it might be some other protocol. But that's that beaconing activity is generally how they check to see if there's new commands available. Uh, now, in the early days of bots, they were all about IRC, Internet Relay Chat, weren't they? But we don't really see IRC bots anymore, do we? Why is that? Mostly because IRC as a, as a kind of instant chat protocol just isn't used very often anymore. At a company, you can basically just outright block all IRC traffic because no one's really using it in a, in a legitimate sense anymore. If you can't use a chat protocol, how do bots communicate with their controllers, with their bot masters? 
Well, there's a variety of ways. I think the most common method of botnet communication these days is over HTTP. So it's normal web traffic. You can effectively tunnel commands inside an HTTP request. So it's much more likely to get through firewalls and content filtering and everything else that everyone has at the perimeter of their network. So it's, that sounds like it's almost as though by taking the very simple and obvious approach, that bot command and control traffic is pretty much able to hide in plain sight. Yeah, that's effectively what they try and do. You have to try and make your bot traffic look as much like normal web browsing traffic as possible. Of course, bots don't have to use HTTP, do they? And there have been some esoteric ones over time. One I seem to recall actually used Twitter as a means of getting control, that it would go and read tweets from a particular account. And those tweets were thinly veiled instructions on what to do next. Or also seen a case where uh, commands have been uploaded to Craigslist adverts. <laughs> so the, the bot connects out to Craigslist at a certain advert and reads in that data, processes the information to pull out the commands. There's no sort of actual server address that you can block or take down because it's a legitimate service. So what you and I see as bicycle for sale could mean to the bot, get busy spamming right now. Well, absolutely. You can, you can effectively, we're encoding binary data into some other sort of traffic. I mean, if you upload an image file to one of these services, um, you can embed all kinds of information into that image file. It's called steganography, where you're sort of hiding in plain sight. So that rather leads us to why they're obviously going to an awful lot of effort to build the malware in the first place, to deliver it by means of things like exploits or poisoned ads or whatever, to collect these things into the botnet, and then to have a command and control mechanism that, as far as it can, evades detection. That's an awful lot of effort. What's in it for the crooks? Why do they do it? There are perhaps classes of bots where the goal is more about sort of espionage, where you have sort of nation states trying to perpetrate the, the botnet infection and extract information. But by far and away, the most common way that people are infected is because someone's trying to make money out of their computer. There's an enormous number of different ways that this can happen. One of the obvious ones is by trying to steal financial information off that machine. So if they can steal credit card numbers, bank account details, there's an obvious sort of dollar goal to that one. Um, another way is by just stealing sort of login credentials. Your Facebook username and password is worth money to someone. Certainly your email username and password is worth money. And of course, the guys who run a botnet, they don't have to use those stolen records themselves, do they? They can actually go onto an underground forum and sell the stuff that they've got, software keys, passwords, credit card numbers, to the highest bidder. Most of the time when you create a botnet and you steal lots of information like this, the only thing you want to do is to sell those credentials. You don't necessarily want to use them. They very quickly go out into the ecosystem and someone else has bought them and they're going to use them. But the botnet industry, if one can use that term, isn't only about getting onto your computer and seeing what it can find that can be taken off and sold, is it? There's a sort of flip side to it, which is abusing your computer 
to provide a service that if the crooks were to do themselves, they'd probably get caught out. One that, that's been around for a very long time is to use the machine as a, a spam relay machine. So how does that work? My computer's infected. It makes a connection to the command and control server. What does it do? It downloads, rather than sort of downloading the spam fixed message, it will download a template. It will receive the list of email addresses that it wants to send them to and shoot off millions of messages. So if you think that having a bot on your computer could give you a bad reputation because you're sending spam for the crooks, it can actually get a lot worse, can't it? Because they could actually set up something like a web proxy on your computer so that they could rent out your computer as a gateway for other crooks to do anything they wanted. Yeah, so cyber criminals being cyber criminals, they do a lot of basically dodgy stuff on the internet. And generally when they're browsing to be it underground forums or something even worse, they want to be anonymous when they're on the internet. So one type of um, service that bots often offer is effectively proxied anonymous internet access through your compromised machine. So if I'm a bot master, I can rent out your computer to other crooks, but I can also instruct your computer to do stuff that generates revenue on my behalf. Uh, and I'm thinking particularly of click fraud. Do you want to explain how that works? So click fraud works by generating fake clicks. They set themselves up as an affiliate who's going to receive some portion of usually only sort of like a few cents when an advert is clicked. And then they instruct all of the bots in the botnet to go around clicking all these adverts and they get a few cents off every click. But because there's so many bots generating so many clicks, that actually builds up into a very large amount of money. Presumably the ad networks fairly quickly realize that something is wrong when you've had two million clicks and not one of those people has bought anything? Or do the crooks actually go and spend your money from time to time if they've got your credit card to make their clicks look legit? <laughs> it's, uh, it's an interesting idea. I don't know if anyone's sort of got any evidence of that happening, but if, if it's not costing the crooks anything to do it in the first place, why not, I guess? Okay, so... James, just to bring this to a conclusion, let's look at the second half of that why. It should be pretty obvious why we need to take the idea of knocking over botnet seriously. This is a danger to our economy. Why haven't we been able to de-zombify the world? If you were king and you could give your subjects an edict that said, this is the one thing I want you to do, what would it be? Well, I think if you're trying to sort of stop bots long term, the one thing you have to try and stop is people getting infected in the first place. If I, if I could possibly perhaps give two things that people could do. You're the king. You can have as many as you like. <laughs> okay, I give myself one extra. Yeah, so the first thing I'd recommend is to be more suspicious of things you get through email. Email is still one of the most common ways that people get infected. And it's predominantly through social engineering attacks that people get infected. So when you receive an email from someone you've never heard of before, you've never communicated with before, and there's some interesting attachment to the email, or they say, click this link, something really cool will happen. Don't do that. that that's, that's one of the most common ways that people get infected. So those are the things like 
hey, here's a here's an invoice. If you want to contest it, you have to open the file. Or here's a DHL delivery and we weren't able to find you at home. How are we going to get the parcel to you? Those kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. Just, you know, be suspicious. A lot of the time when you get emails from people you don't know, it's a scam or it's malware. So you just sort of have to start off from a position of suspicion. Okay. And your second recommendation? So the second one is to make sure that you are patched. Everything on your system, operating system patches, browser patches and browser plugin patches. Java is one of the most common infection vectors of the last year or so because lots of people are running an outdated version of Java that lots and lots of exploits exist for. Now, the irony with Java is that even if you need Java so you can run Java program software that you install on your computer, very few people really need Java in their browser, do they? That's right. I think the Java browser plugin it used to be a way of creating sort of rich content inside the browser. Nowadays, there are lots of other technologies that basically do this better than Java. So there's not really an awful lot of websites out there that need the Java plugin. So disabling it, if you can, is, is a great way to not get infected. They just want that initial point of entry. And once they've got something running on your computer, they can do whatever they want. They can download other stuff. So it's stopping that initial point of entry that's the important part. James, I think that's an excellent point on which to end. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks to all of our listeners, too. If you enjoyed this podcast, you'll find plenty more at soundcloud.com slash Sophos Security. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay secure. Mm-hmm.